we could actually analyze the noises of the submarines. And we could not only tell his direction uh, and, and where he was going, but how fast he was going. We could tell uh, whether it was a whiskey or a foxtrot or a Romeo. I think you saw that in uh, Hunt for Red October. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Colonel Terry Chester spent a good portion of his Royal Canadian Air Force career hunting for Soviet submarines in both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. He was instrumental in the design criteria for sub-hunting capabilities when Canada procured the then-new Aurora for anti-submarine hunting in the early 1980s. Terry has some great stories to tell regarding sub-hunting tactics as well as Canadian participation in NATO exercises. As the podcast gets more popular, our costs of hosting and running the podcast increase. If you're enjoying what you're hearing... A few dollars, pounds or rubles a month help keep us on the air. Head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us. It is really appreciated. Now back to today's episode where we start with Terry telling us about his early career. I, I joined the RCAF uh, in 1964, uh, right out of uh, high school, actually. Um, I decided I went down to a recruiting center and they they told me that they would pay my way through university. Uh, and so I said, well, I'll take that. So uh, so I signed up. I, I graduated from uh, from university uh, under the regular officer training plan in 68 and um, was um, posted to um Summerside, Prince Edward Island, uh, to fly on the Argus Argus aircraft. Um, uh, it, uh, the Argus uh, was a um, four-engine uh, torpedo-carrying uh, anti-submarine aircraft, a derivative of the Bristol Britannia, actually. Um, and uh, Canada took that Bristol Britannia made it into a couple of airplanes. One was a, a, a Yukon, which we put turboprops on. It was a transport aircraft. And the other one was the Argus, um, which they put... Okay. Uh, and the, the Bristol Britannia, was that uh, an airliner? That yes, was... it was. It was a British, yeah. British airliner, a very unique one, uh, free-floating control systems. And for those that, that in the aviation business would understand, uh, a very difficult aircraft to fly uh, precisely because the... Uh, the control systems were not linked directly to the control column. They they went through a system of servo tabs. So you moved a servo tab, and that servo tab then moved the control column uh, in uh, or moved the control surface in the direction you wanted. So it was very loose, um, uh, but uh, very easily maintainable. There weren't any large hydraulic systems, um, uh, and in any event, the aircraft was always a handful. So. When I got posted off to Summerside, I actually was um, a navigator radio officer for three years. I flew around in the back of this aircraft, operating all the uh, anti-submarine warfare systems and the radios, etc. And then I, um, I decided I wanted a seat with a window. 
So I asked to cross train to pilot and I already had my private pilot's license. And so uh, unbelievably, they said, yes, okay, fine. So they sent me off pilot training. Um, and when I got my wings uh, in Cold Lake, Alberta, they immediately posted me right back to the Argus. And so I uh, ended up um, moving up to the to the cockpit uh, and flying it. And I spent uh, the next 10 years flying and instructing uh, down in Summerside and Greenwood, Nova Scotia, uh, on on the Argus aircraft, um, and um, uh, I traveled to pretty much every country uh, in the free world. I never did get to the Soviet Union, but the Argus, being a long-range patrol bomber, it it traveled extensively. So I was everywhere from Australia. Uh, at, all the way up through um, Iceland and Norway and Denmark and etc. All through Europe, spent spent a lot of time in the UK, uh, flying out of um, the UK's bases uh, up in um, uh, in Preswick uh, and uh, down in St. Morgan in the UK, uh, where you guys flew the Nimrods from, um, mm -hmm. and working with the Americans um, and flying out of U.S. Navy bases uh, all the way up to Adak, Alaska, um, uh, and, and out of Thule, Greenland, uh, and uh, didn't get much down into Africa, although we were into the Azores uh, and that sort of stuff. But our job was to patrol the North Atlantic uh, and make sure that um, we had a good handle on where the Soviets the Russians uh, were were putting their submarines, so that was that was our expertise. Um, all sort of came uh, Canada's role in ASW. We were recognized as one of the best uh, in in ASW. Uh, and and oh by the way, uh, Ian, if if I bounce into an acronym that you you don't understand and then or that you may not know, just just stop me. ASW, of course, anti-submarine warfare. Um, mm -hmm. In, in 1962, actually, uh, uh, before I even started, I didn't start flying, as I said, till later, uh, Canada's uh, ASW force was brought to the fore. You may remember back in 62 was a Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, yeah. And the, um, the Americans blockaded the Russian submarines and ships from uh, sending missiles to Cuba and Canada was involved in that, and our Argus aircraft was uh, was out over the uh, over the oceans monitoring the uh, the Russian submarines. Uh, first, as they came down through the GI UK gap, uh, that's a Greenland Iceland UK gap, that spot of water in there uh, north of uh, Scotland, where um, all Russian submarines that want to enter the Atlantic have to come through that gap. And it, it's a choke point. Um, and so we would we based out of Iceland, Reykjavik in Iceland, uh, and also out of Bodo in uh, Norway. Uh, and, of course, uh, out of um, uh, the UK, uh, Scotland. Uh, and we were helping to monitor the Russians as they came through. And then as they transited down through the Atlantic, um, we wanted them to know that we were there. Um, and we were armed uh, with the depth bombs and torpedoes. And if someone had pushed the button and said, um, we need you to uh, sink that submarine, uh, we were quite prepared to do it. So um, 
it, it, it was an interesting time, but, but Canada honed its ASW skills then. Uh, and uh, we were, as I said, we were recognized as, as one of the best in the world. And the Argus aircraft uh, was equipped with all of the latest sensors. We had uh, active and passive sensors, and I'll, I'll go through those uh, in a bit. But we, uh, we obviously had the old World War II anti-submarine sensors, uh, the radars, um, etc., et, et uh, but we had also got some new, uh, quieter, more passive sensors with which we tracked these submarines. Now, the Russian submarines were, uh, they had hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of these submarines. Uh, at that time, during the 60s and 70s, it was their conventional fleet. They were snorkeling submarine, diesel electrics is what they were. They had diesel engines that charged up uh, electric batteries. Um, and there we they we had uh, NATO code names for them all, the Whiskey, the Zulu, the Golf, the Romeo, the Foxtrot, uh, all of those uh, types of submarines. Um, I've actually been on a Foxtrot, uh, strangely. Um, wow. There's there's one in the UK moored on the River Medway um, that used to be a museum ship. And the guy there is trying to uh, find a mooring for it. And it, it looks like the crew got off it just yesterday. It's a it's a fascinating uh, boat. And it, it's really interesting hearing you talk about this because it's it does sort of bring it more to life, um, having been on one of these submarines. Uh, absolutely. And, they, and of course, they had. Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Das Boot, uh, but uh, where where these guys are um, uh, in a submarine under the water. But I got to tell you, I'm I'm slightly claustrophobic, and and I would not uh, want to to be in any one of these boats. Uh, no, uh, I've I have I have seen that film, and I yeah. do vividly remember that sequence where I think they're trying to get through the Straits of Gibraltar. Yes. And uh, they get depth charge. So the depth charges you had, were they sort of just like a World War Two depth charge? They, or were exactly, they more... Yeah, it was a Mark 54. It was a depth bomb. I think it was about 100, 100, kilogram, 100 pounds of TNT. Uh, we carried uh, 16 of them in our bombers. We had big, big bomb bays. Uh, and we would drop them in a stick of eight. Uh, uh, at a 30 degree angle to the MLA of the submarine, that, the main line of approach is submarine. So we would fly at 100 feet over the water, uh, 100 feet. Now our wingspan, you've got to remember in the Argus, was 150 feet. So here we are at 100 feet down low level, bomb bays open, coming in on the submarine, and we would fly across him at 30 degrees and drop and plant it. So we would drop four depth bombs on one side of them and four on the other. Um, and then they were fused so that they would explode from the outside in. And so uh, they would cause a concussion and and break the submarine in half. Now, the they were designed, they, they exploded somewhere between 100 and 200 feet below the surface. Uh, they had a little propeller on the on the tail that that had to spin so many times before the bomb was armed. Um, and um, it was uh, a real trick uh, to be able to to drop these precisely uh, across the submarine. Of course, 
the submarine was in the process. He saw you coming, right? So he's in the process of doing a crash dive. The, the most effective uh, time to attack the submarine, obviously, when he's on the surface uh, or, or when he's snorkeling. Um, and so you would uh, you'd catch him either on radar or visually uh, with the Mark One eyeball, we used to call it, which was actually mm-hmm. our best our best sensor. Um, and then uh, scoot in, drop down as low as you could. Uh, if you could, you could come uh, from from uh, up sun, you know, just like the hun in the sun. Uh, and then you yeah. would you drop your um, uh, your depth bombs on him. Then, of course, as he's uh, you would assume that you didn't that you didn't kill him that he was still uh, trying to get away so then you would establish um, a mad trapping pattern around him uh, and now mad magnetic anomaly detector on the tail of the Argus as there is in the Nimrod and the Atlantique uh, and all ASW aircraft there's a magnetic sensor right out on the tip of the tail the reason it's out there is to keep it clear of, of aircraft electronics well that detects large bodies of metal under the water. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And so we would fly low level again, 200 feet, uh, and we would do a trapping circle around where we saw his swirl go down, where his last known point was. And about a 2,000 yard circle, I think, and we would fly this uh, waiting for him to broach the circle. And our, our guys in the back are monitoring the, the equipment. And as soon as they saw a large deflection, on their needles and we knew we had flown over them so we would drop a smoke marker in the water and then uh, we knew where he was when he went down and we knew where he was when we got the the mag mark so then we would just draw a line and then we would fly down that line again with the mad on again and if we got another mag mark then we would drop a couple of torpedoes Uh, and we also had torpedoes in the bombay mark 44s, I think. Yeah, Mark 44s. We would drop a couple of those uh, on his uh, where we projected he was. We would actually drop them on the next Mad Mark, is what it was called, uh, and then uh, and then listen. Uh, we also dropped at that time. We would drop uh, listening devices, sonobuoys, uh, into the water to listen for his uh, noise, for the noise. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the the big vulnerabilities of a submarine uh, is its, uh, its noise. It, they make noise, a lot of noise. Uh, their propellers make noise, their uh, motors, their auxiliaries, they all make noise. And that noise, water is a great medium for transmitting noise. And so we would put listening devices, sonoboys, into the water to listen for him. Uh, and 
we got so sophisticated later on with uh, listening to that, we can actually analyze the noises of the submarines in some of our later equipment. And we could not only tell his direction uh, and, and where he was going, but how fast he was going. We could even identify the type of submarine it was by the engine noise. Um, uh, we could tell uh, whether it was a whiskey or a foxtrot or a Romeo just by the engine noises and noises the submarine was making. Um, I think you saw that in uh, Hunt for Red October and all those guys. Those, those acoustics guys, we called them, they, they were magic. And they, uh, Jonesy, uh, they could listen to the, uh, the, the sound the submarine was making and they could tell you that the guy had a chip in his blade or that the turbine was running slightly off speed etc etc and so that yeah. was that can was i just ask you i just want to ask you a couple of questions on on some of the stuff that you you've just mentioned there yeah that the, you mentioned dropping the torpedoes did they yes. have a ho a homing mechanism of any kind absolutely yeah they they would they would drop in the water we usually tried to drop them ahead of the submarine and they would circle they would do a right or left turn i don't forget which it is and they would circle back and they would ping they would they had their own little sonar in in them and so they would ping out, uh, and when they got the when they acquired the target, they would home in on the target and explode on. Uh, I think it was a proximity fuse, or maybe it was on impact. Uh, they would explode when they hit the submarine. A absolutely, they were active torpedoes, and the submarine knew they were in the water. He could hear them uh, yeah. as, as they were trying to acquire him, and he was uh, obviously trying to to uh, to get out, wriggle out of that. Uh, uh, with the torpedoes. Now he had yeah. noisemakers he could put in in the water, and he had they had ways of putting a knuckle in the water. They called it where they would turn rapidly and create a large air bubble, which they hoped the torpedo would home on. Uh, but but of course now the the Americans and and the Russians have much much more sophisticated torpedoes, wake homing torpedoes they call them, etc. etc. So. Uh, but those, that was fairly rudimentary, and we we would go, we would drop at least two, and then if they didn't, if we were really in a hurry and whatever, and we didn't see it, we we drop two more. I mean, we were we were trained that we we uh, it was very unusual, very that you would ever acquire this guy, and when you got him, you didn't want to let him go. Our objective was to fill him full of water, um, and so um, we were. Uh, uh, we were motivated to do that. Uh, the crews uh, that we were were had we had crews of uh, about 17 to 20 people that worked as a as a team. Um, and uh, if I have more, I I'd like to talk to you about another hunting tactic that we use that really brought the teamwork together. It was called Julie. Uh, Julie was a very interesting um, way of locating a submarine under the water. It was uh, explosive echo ranging is what it was. So uh, when the submarine went down, the uh, the navigator, tactical navigator back would would direct the pilot uh, over the spot and they would drop some sonoboys, those listening devices. And when we dropped the, the sonoboy, we would drop a small explosive charge with it that would detonate uh, when the when the hydrophone from the from the sonoboy was at depth. And that would send out a little little uh, explosion of the water. And mm -hmm. we would be listening to that. And then we would hear if there was a return echo. 
And when we got the echo, the guys had these paper charts. They could actually measure the time, and we convert, obviously, the time into distance around that Sonoboy. So we got an echo off a of Sonoboy. So we knew that if we got an echo, that the submarine was, let's just say, 1,000 yards from that Sonoboy, anywhere on that circle. So then we would drop another Sonoboy with a charge. And if we got another echo, then we could then we'd have um, two points. And the nav would be plotting this on his chart at the back. Um, and then one more to, for triangulation. And then mm -hmm. we had a fairly good idea within two or 300 yards of where that submarine was. And then we could go over there with the MAD um, uh, uh, to, to verify that. And then once we got a MAD contact, the MAD told us within about 200 yards where he was. Uh, it was very accurate. Uh, when when we got a mad mark, we knew that that's exactly where it was. So we could actually attack off mad um, and and drop our. So, uh, but that Julie sequence required extreme crew coordination. We had a a nose observer in the glass uh, or the plexiglass nose of the Argus. He mm -hmm. had a visual plot, and he said, "Son of boy, ten is over there. There's a smoke. A turn right, pilot." The pilots were driving the aircraft. The nav was telling them what sonoboy to go over on what heading uh, and on what altitude. Then he would call for a drop of a particular channel sonoboy, and the guy in the ordnance guy in the back would have to drop it out. Um, and uh, at w when he was told, along with a smoke or a charge, um, and it was like a ballet. When it, when a crew was doing Julie. And the instructions were coming and uh, the crew, they were yanking and banking. Remember, you're, you're two to three hundred feet above the ocean. And they also mm -hmm. did this at night uh, where there was a significant chance of disorientation, especially on a clear night. And, and uh, there's a sad story. We did lose an Argus uh, back in about 64 off Puerto Rico that was doing a night ASW exercise and actually crashed into the water. And they believe that the pilots got severely disoriented, low level, and you had the stars up in the sky, a black, black sea and sky, and then you had the lights of the sonoboys in the ocean. And they believe he might have been disoriented at uh, 300 feet or so and just turned into the water. Uh, but um, the crew were worked up. We were motivated and we were we wanted to find that submarine. Um, and Later on, then, uh, we got another system called Jezebel. Uh, and Jezebel was uh, another way of analyzing the acoustic signature of the submarine. Uh, but the beauty of Jezebel was that it was, pass um, it was passive. That is, the submarine didn't know you were there. Um, and uh, we, we dropped these son boys in and we just listened. And you could you could pick up the, the signature of the submarine. And like I said, we could analyze it. And then we would drop little barriers where we thought he was going of these sauna boys and then monitor the barrier for this guy to pass it. And then we would put another couple of barriers. The submarine, not knowing you're there, he's not going to change course or anything. Uh, and we could track this guy for hours, uh, him com being completely unaware that we're tracking him. Um, and so that even applied when the when the Russians went for nuclear submarines. Uh, they nuclear submarines under the water are also extremely noisy. Uh, they're obviously they're a lot quieter these days. But 
Um, we uh, we had some uh, some great times for hours and hours just tracking. And then when we went off station, we would actually hand over our contact to the guy relieving us and say, here he is. Uh, he's on this son of boy here. Have a nice day. And and off off we go home. So um, it was it was an exciting time for us all. We had a defined enemy uh, and we we knew how to find him. Um, and if necessary, uh, we knew what we had to do to neutralize him. Uh, and uh, they were they were heady days for us all because we had good equipment. We had very, very good people uh, and we had a mission. Um, and uh, we very, we felt very, very proud of what we were doing and our capabilities uh, uh, to to help uh, deter this threat. And I mentioned to you before how how we were motivated to do that. Our our bosses and our political leaders did a great job of demonizing these people, uh, telling us that they were going to kill our wives and children in their beds. Um, and that it was our job to get out there and make sure they didn't. And so we would we would go on these 16 to 18 hour patrols. And that's how long they were. Uh, we would take off at sometimes three, four in the morning, you know, and, and recover the next night uh, after having flown out a thousand miles to sea, uh, done a, a four or five, a six hour patrol and then flown home. Um, and uh, we felt motivated and good about what we did because we thought we were making a difference. And and how did you deal with that length of time in the air? I mean, um, you know, was boredom come into it? Well, boredom is certainly boredom. We always took a good book. Uh, in those <laughs> days, you know, that people didn't have a cell phone to play video games and stuff. You took a good book, but there was a routine. You generally worked uh, like for in the cockpit. You will go up and you will go into the right seat uh, for two hours and then you would get out, get a 10 minute break, stretch your legs, get a cup of coffee, whatever. Then you go into the left seat for two hours and then you come out and then you'd be off for two hours. So we had a crew of three pilots uh, and so you'd rotate. So while you were off, we had we had four bunk beds uh, in the uh, in the aircraft, uh, a full kitchen uh, where we would actually cook steak dinners. Uh, and some of the cook, you always had a good cook on the crew who would whip up fantastic gourmet meals uh, and breakfasts and stuff. Because generally, when you, when you got airborne, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you hadn't had breakfast. So um, uh, you would whip up a breakfast. Um, and then there was always something to do. Some of the equipment, you know, in the back maybe need a bit of tweaking or peaking. So you, you'd be pulling boxes out and, and fixing them or... Uh, getting the the sauna boys ready for when you got on station, um, or you know what? We also had a lot of um, tests and exams. Uh, we were checked all the time. I, I as a pilot, I had uh, three check rides a year: uh, instrument check ride, proficiency handling check ride, on and on. So you'd be studying up for your exams, um, and so you'd have um, the AOIs, the aircraft operating instructions. You'd have those out. You'd be reading. Uh, and another thing that the crews did is we because we all depended on each other, uh, we'd be asking each other questions. And if there was a quiet moment in transit or stuff, the captain 
the crew commander, whose job it was to oversee all training, would be asking the young second officer questions uh, or what ifs. Okay, we're here and whatever. It would be part of his job to train. So we were never bored. Um, I must admit, you know, uh, we there were times when I wish I were home in my nice warm bed, uh, but we were out there. Uh, so I was either sleeping or eating or reading or doing my job. Uh, we had it was supposed to be the equivalent of two full crews on board. But in fact, it was just one big crew and we rotated through the position. Uh, the navs rotated between routine nav, tech nav, scribe, etc. The radio officers, equipment operators would rotate between the ASW, which is the position in the back, the Sonoboy ordinance, or he'd be running the ESM, electronic surveillance measures, or he'd be running the radar, or he'd be on acoustics, um, or he'd be up on the radio. Uh, now, the radio, the HF radio was our obviously our main piece of, uh, that's how we communicated on mm -hmm. HF. And interestingly, in those days, it was single sideband Morse code in the 60s. So when I first trained as a navigator radio officer, I had to learn Morse code. Uh, and I could send and receive Morse code at about 35 or 40 words a minute, just like an old um, uh, teletype operator. Because when you're out in the middle of the ocean or way up north or whatever, HF is really unreliable. But Morse code can always get through. So that and we would we would be sending position reports. We send a position report when we're out every hour, uh, just in case something happened and we ended up in the water. If they didn't talk to us for two or three hours, then they knew where we were two or three hours ago, and so that's where the search and rescue would would go. Right, uh, and I presume you'd have to encode that before you send it. Absolutely, we had. All these old codes, they were um, pa paper codes. Uh, and so we would have to take it laboriously, you know, go across the top and down the side. So the letter A is really a Q, you know, and, and we code it all up. And it was the job of the radio officer to bring the codes uh, with him and just sort of top secret codes and, and whatever. Uh, and... Uh, they he would he would be the only guy that was allowed to look at them. Uh, and so when we when the nav would say, OK, it's time to send the the hourly message, he would give it in in uh, on a piece of paper and the, the radio officer would code it up and then send it out to to base. And then, of course, base had the same set of codes for the day. They would decode it. Uh, they were they the codes were only good for 24 hours. Um, and then um, they, they would have our position. So. Later on, uh, single sideband radio got better and we could talk, uh, use voice, uh, but, but still all coded. And then, then much later, it's just towards the end of the life of the Argus, we started getting um, um, radios where uh, we, we could insert a, a coded card and we had a teletype. So we could actually type the message out. It would be coded up um, and it would go out. Uh, ju just like, uh, you know, the Russian, the, the um, German submarines did with Enigma, you know, uh, mm -hmm. it, but it, it took us until uh, almost 1980 to catch up to that. But <laughs> that was um, uh, we uh, th th that was later on. Uh, and the Morse key kind of went by the side. But 
Even to this day, some 50 years later, I can still send and receive Morse code. It it was drilled into me so so much that uh, that it was one of those things you never you never forget. I'm probably not as fast as I used to be, but um, <laughs> yeah, the codes and security uh, were something. Uh, quite often we will go out on what's called a covert mission. Uh, in other words, we didn't want them to know that we knew where they were uh, playing the big games. Uh, one of the when things we did, the Americans had a really great system called SOSIS, Sound Underwater Surveillance System, something like that. And they had, uh, they still may have it, uh, but but I know it's not secret anymore. Uh, we were not allowed to talk about it in public, but uh, it's been in Reader's Digest, so I'm sure I can talk about it. Oh, well, uh, you're fine then. <laughs> it, it's, um, it, in, in Argentia, Newfoundland, uh, there was a, a base uh, there uh, and and also down through the States. And I believe there are a couple uh, up off of uh, Norway and uh, Denmark and certainly in the UK where they had these underwater listening devices. They're permanently there, uh, connected by a long chain. And these these would pick up the sounds of a submarine coming by and they would transmit that position to us. Uh, and then we will go out and verify that with our sonoboys. Well, because of the secrecy of this all, we we quite often we would even use a, we, when we took off, just like in World War II when the Lancaster bombers were heading over, we would get a green light from the tower, literally, and, and take off, wouldn't talk to anybody, uh, would go um, due regard uh, out over the ocean, uh, low level, not send any position reports, nothing. Uh, and we'd be out there for like uh, 10 to 12 hours, uh, all by ourselves, no lights, no nothing, secretly out there, uh, listening and monitoring. And then, of course, we come back with all the tapes and all the data uh, and put that into the system. And the intelligence system would then update all of their uh, uh, data with that. So th those those were times we didn't we didn't uh, tell anybody where we were going. Uh, we were like secret squirrels, you know, just churning about out there over the ocean. Uh, and uh, it was it was kind of exciting, you know. We kind of felt close. Here we are sneaking about over the ocean. Of course, there's no no one else is stupid enough to be flying around at two or three thousand feet uh, over the Atlantic. So we weren't worried about running into anybody um, uh, because all the airliner traffic was all up at 30, 30, 25, 30,000 feet where we we couldn't go. Remember, we were just radial engines. We weren't pressurized, um, and um, we had a uh, very occasionally, a little anecdotes. We would talk to the to the over. Uh, the, we called them the aluminum overcast. Uh, the, uh, the the aircraft up there. We'd hear them talking. Speedbird five two six. You know, flight level six zero zero. You know, and uh, we we call back and say, Hey, Speedbird, uh, we're at six zero zero as well. I said, Hey, really? Well, yes, six hundred feet. Um, and uh, the uh, the um, we would have have some great times i uh, every once in a while those old right 3350s would would not work well they were air cooled cylinders and, and if if the spark plugs didn't work in one of the cylinders that 18 cylinders on each engine and if if the spark plugs went out the cylinder would cool down and it would crack so we had to shut that engine down so one day i i lost an engine i had a cylinder my flight engineer uh, who handled all the engines uh, said we've got to shut down uh, number one. Uh, we've got a dead pot, uh, which is a cylinder. 
So we shut it down and we returned home. Well, we tried to call in via HF radio to tell them we were coming home with a dead engine uh, and we couldn't get through. So we went to the aluminum overcast uh, VHF uh, 121.5 and said, would you relay this message, please, to Halifax military? We're coming home with a dead cylinder. Uh, and the guys, that, um, I think it was Air Canada, or was it? Certainly, we'll relay that. So they relayed it over their net. Um, and uh, then I heard another guy on the net say, uh, Air Canada 524, this is a Boeing, the British Airways. Over yes, what is that? What's a cylinder? You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we kind of felt, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, but we, um, the, uh, the old Arcus aircraft, she brought me home. I have about uh, 6,000 hours flying that aircraft. Uh, she brought me home many, many times uh, on three. Uh, she could fly on two and even one at very low weights, but uh, it was quite routine, actually, after a while to, to, to do three-engine landings. We were very, very good at it. Uh, and my old flight engineer uh, would say, if we were meant to land on four engines, we'd have five. Um, because they 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 were a wonderful engine, about uh, 3,300 horsepower uh, we got uh, out of that. Thing. Or was it? Yeah, 3,350 or something like that. Uh, no, 3,700 horsepower out of a 3,350 cubic inch engine. So we were actually getting a horsepower, more than one horsepower for every cubic inch. Um, we had... Um, anti-detonant injection, which is an ethylene glycol mixture we used to inject into the cylinders uh, on takeoff to give us more horsepower. It cooled the cylinder down. And we could drive that baby uh, cheap, noisy. It converted 115, 145 into noise and very little forward movement. But it was um, a wonderful old airplane uh, with all the sensors, a wonderful crew, uh, motivated. Um, and um, we 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 thoroughly enjoyed uh, flying it all through the through the uh, 70s. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of the 70s, uh, it was at the end of its useful life. And we got ourselves a new airplane still engaged in the Cold War. Uh, and I was involved in that. I was instructing on the Argus then uh, in Greenwood. And I got involved in the introduction of the new aircraft. Uh, was new then, uh, the CP-140 Aurora, which was an American P-3 with the guts of an S-3 Viking. The S-3 Viking is, is a carrier-borne ASW aircraft, very swept-up avionics. Well, Canada took the P-3, uh, worked with Lockheed, and we put the interior and the sensors from a Viking inside this uh, P-3, and we called it the CP-140. Right. And we bought, we bought 18 of them, and they were then we were back on top of we were kings in the asw world again because now we had a new airplane new capabilities and i have to tell you all my friends in the usn uh were green jealous uh because we were able to do things like single boy doppler tracking uh, uh of uh, soviet nukes we were always being called by the americans to deploy to places like Bermuda, the Azores, uh, et cetera, to help them locate um, uh, difficult targets. And I, I can remember one time there was a Delta submarine, which is a 
which is a pretty swept up um, ballistic missile submarine uh, the Soviets have that was giving them trouble down south of the Azores. And we deployed an Aurora there and I was with them. We must have been there a month uh, because we will go out and find this guy, track him for a while, hand him over to the Americans. They would lose him. Then we'd have to go out and find him again uh, and hand him over to the Americans and they would lose him. Um, uh, because uh, we had um, a really good team of uh, expert, our acousticians were officers, uh, trained officers, university degree officers uh, who were at the top of their game. Um, and they could manipulate uh, that their equipment and find, find needles in haystacks and stuff. So we were, we were on top of our game uh, with the Aurora once again, um, and uh, the Auroras are still with us. Uh, I was uh, I was lucky enough to go down to Burbank uh, and uh, help to bring some of those aircraft back home, and then help to set up the training unit in Greenwood, where I taught other people how to fly this airplane. Um, and it was like going from a Model T Ford to a Maserati. I mean, we were we 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 were kids in a candy store with this brand new airplane. Um, and uh, we we thought we were God's answer to aviation. Uh, the uh, we we had the world by the ass, and we were running downhill. I believe the expression is. Well, it, uh, it sounds like the USN thought you were, um, you know, God's gift to ASW. Anyway, if you were finding it, these nuclear subs. <laughs> indeed, indeed, and we were helping them out, and and we actually the Americans were flying with us. They would they would ask to come on board. Uh, you know, this basically was an American airplane, right? I mean, we just happened to buy it, but yeah. we were so good at it that the Americans would come and they say, how do you do that? What are you doing here? Um, and then, of course, and here's another uh, little insight. The, the U.S. Navy, who jealously guard any secrets about their submarines, were not very happy with us because we were picking up data and stuff that they even they, they wouldn't even tell the U.S. Navy P3 fleet, and we were picking up and recording all this information, uh, we would say, uh, oh, yeah, we found this Los Angeles class uh, submarine. Uh, he's, he's at this position and that position. And they will come back and say, no, 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 he wasn't there. No, you're mistaken. Uh, he wasn't there. Um, and so then they started having guys fly with us to find out what we were finding out and telling us, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's no foreign. Uh, no foreign information, which means no foreign, no non-U.S. types are allowed to see that information. And so we'd say, hey, well, look, you know, you guys are putting it out there. Uh, we're going to find it. Well, that's all we had time for. But we do have a second episode coming up with some more great stories from Terry's career. Do visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's details of Vintage Wings, a collection of historically significant aircraft that Terry has worked on, as well as the Royal Canada Air Force Association, of which Terry was a national president. If you like what you are listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. It really helps raise our profile and get great guests like Terry onto the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. 
just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the join the conversation option. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.